Ladies and gentlemen, grunts of girls, welcome to episode 44 of Bullets to Beans. As always, I'm your host, Doc Joslin. This is October 30th. That's right, folks. Tomorrow is Halloween, and it has been a quick minute since I've been in the studio. Last I looked, I think it was August 22nd, so it's been a little over two months. A lot has happened since then. Episode 43, I started talking about the COVID vaccine mandates and what's going to happen with that. I'm pretty sure my predictions played out. We'll talk about that briefly. I don't want to get into that too much. Afghanistan fell. I had to pause for a second. I had to take a breath. I have lots of thoughts and emotion about this. Uh, We're going to talk about the fall of Afghanistan, some of my opinions around it. And uh, yeah, I think that needs to be discussed. It's been discussed. I think it needs to be discussed from the perspective... I say it's been discussed. It's been discussed by a lot of generals and a lot of Pentagon officials and people in Washington. You see it on C-SPAN. You see it on news outlets. Let's discuss it from the perspective of a ground pounder, of a warrior on the ground who fought there in 08 and 09. Uh, So we'll do that. We got another coffee from Black Rifle Coffee. Of course, this one is Gothic Serpent. I can't wait to talk about it. And then we'll just play catch up. What have I been doing the last couple of months? Uh, And how come I've been silent? I think those are important to talk about as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's about it. That's what we're going to talk about on the show today. So strap in, stay tuned, and uh, here we go. I get one of them to monitor, and I get back on the gun and get back out and fight. That's probably one of the good progressions through the military. The aircraft is pitching and rolling, and we're going through the valley, and it. It's just a wild, wild ride, and I'm trying to think to myself. No, No, the crisis has to culminate, and in communities like Seattle and Portland. Bullets to Beans, your weekly military and veteran podcast with Doc Joslin. You take home defense seriously. You have a fire extinguisher, alarm system, and firearm training. But have you considered another crucial home defense tool? MaverickTactical.com is taking it to the next level. In their enduring commitment to top-quality self-defense, they have added composite armor. Composite armor plates are lighter, more comfortable, and offer your choice of level 3A, 3+, and level 4 protection. Maverick Tactical also now carries flexible vests. With complete 3A protection and the option to increase front and back protection by adding higher level plates. For an even more concealable option, check out Maverick Tactical's shirts with front and back protection. Maverick Tactical is your locally owned personal defense choice. And all of their armor is made right here in North Carolina. Protect yourself fully with Maverick Tactical, a crucial part of your home defense package. Call 336-269-7292 today. Online at mavericktactical.com. And welcome to segment one. All right, real quick before we get started, the commercial from Maverick Tactical, Patrick, he talks about their new soft armor and their new composite plates. I have a set. And let me tell you, they're fucking amazing. So if you're looking to add body armor into your home defense kit, go to mavericktactical.com. Check out what they have. Their stuff's amazing. I can't say enough good things about Patrick and his family and his line of body armor. All right. So this morning... Let's start off talking about Afghanistan. General Milley had to testify before Congress. SECDEF was there before Congress. 
I watched some of that. Kind of made me mad. I, I didn't want to watch anymore. Before we get started, and I kind of go off on a soapbox about that, thinking back to episode 36 and some of the, the shows I've done with Rock. Rock will be back on the show here pretty soon. Not today. You're not going to see him like walk in here. But Rock and I are already planning more shows together. But I want to mention Staff Sergeant Billy Vile, Sergeant Jimmy Pirtle, and Specialist Ryan King. Uh, it bears heavily on the discussion we're about to have. And again, don't ever let them die the second death. Don't ever stop saying their name. So I mentioned their names because I'm going to give you a short story about Afghanistan and how what happened on this fateful day on May 1st, 2009 was so foretelling to what happened in August of this year. So May 1st, which was also my mom's birthday, rest her soul, she's not with us anymore. May 1st, I wake up to the sound of these two 777 guns. We had two Howitzer 155 cannons on our camp at uh, Camp Bostick or Fob Bostick. And it, it wasn't uncommon to hear the, the the howitzers fire, right? I mean, a lot of times they would register targets. A lot of times they were actual shooting live missions. But this morning was different. So I wake up to the guns just volley after volley. And I'm like, holy shit, I should probably wake up and see what's going on. So I kick our PA's door. I'm like, Steve, man, you better get up. Something sounds off. You know, and he kind of kicks the dust out of his eye and I roll over to the talk and it is like all business in there, right? Not that it ever wasn't all business in the talk. It's a talk, right? For my civilian listeners, a talk is a tactical operations center. It's kind of the brain cell node of the task force of, in, in battle, right? Everything was serious. And I can't remember if it was, I don't remember who it was. Somebody saw me walk in and they're, doc, they're like, Doc, spin your teams up. And I'm like, what? They're like, get your people ready. I'm like, oh, okay. And the whole time, these guns are just fucking firing, firing, firing. So what had happened is it was either somewhere between 8 and 11 people, Afghans, Afghan National Army soldiers, were, and if, uh, if I was on video, I would be doing air quotes, were captured by the Taliban which left an entire segment of the perimeter vacant. Okay. There were a couple hundred Taliban fighters, as I remember it, sitting off in the distance. I think it was one person with a suicide vest came into the camp, laid next to the little command bunker that was built. This was just the OP Bar-Eli, an observation post. It's just this little observation post watching for enemy movement, right? So he leans up against this, this HESCO bunker, and blows this suicide vest, and that's what triggers the attack. And then 100-plus so Taliban fighters come through, and they basically sweep and kill the whole camp. There were U.S. soldiers up there, the three that I mentioned, Staff Sergeant Vile, Sergeant Pirtle, and Specialist King. There were Latvian soldiers up there, and there were Afghan Army soldiers up there. So it was a true coalition outpost. I think there were two Latvian survivors, and they were survivors because they were buried under rubble and bodies, if I recall appropriately, many years after. Everyone else got killed. Horrible day for me, horrible day for comedian specialist Jonah Maddox, retired staff sergeant Jonah Maddox. He's been on an episode or two. What we ended up doing that day was body recovery and basically putting Latvian bodies in one pile and pro getting them ready to process for graves, Afghan bodies and body parts in another pile. And 
our three U.S. soldiers and another pile and getting them ready for graves and getting them ready to for their hero flight back home. Every single body I processed that day was double tapped. Every single body had other major polytrauma in at least one or two shots to the head. When they swept that camp, and I'm not, it, it's a battlefield tactic. We're taught it in basic training, or at least in 1994, January, February of 94, at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, I was taught that. After you do an ambush on a camp and you run through, you just pop everybody as you're sweeping through. That's That's a common tactic. Well, they did that, right? So everybody was dead, and then they were dead twice. We ended up taking the camp back by force and holding the ground, uh, but we lost the ground for a while. I think it was three days later, I did the repatriation physical exams on oh, seven, eight, nine. The people that were captured, and I'm doing air quotes again, captured. And this is why I'm doing air quotes. They didn't act like hostages. Think about that, folks. Think of what you would think if you were captured for, you know, 72 hours being walked all around the mountains of Afghanistan with hostile forces and you were supporting your terrorist organization's enemy, the U.S. military and its coalition, you know, form a mental picture of what you think they would look like after they were recaptured and repatriated. Because let me tell you what they fucking looked like. They were thirsty because everyone's dehydrated over there, right? They were thirsty. They weren't really that hungry. You know, I would have thought they wouldn't have been fed for a while, but they weren't really that hungry. They weren't bruised. They weren't beaten. U.S. soldiers that just go on patrol that carry all the weight and gear that we carry are more battered and bruised naturally all over our body just from jumping in and out of trucks and body armor hitting us and just getting dinged all the time, right? They were less bruised than a U.S. soldier. They weren't beaten. They weren't malnourished. They didn't seem withdrawn and introverted, you know, like they were in a form of psychological shock. They seemed like they'd been walking through the fucking mountains for about three or four days with their friends. That's my assessment from a guy who physically witnessed it. Okay, I'm not saying that they just walked off the perimeter and allowed that attack to happen, but I'm suggesting to you that they walked off the fucking perimeter and allowed that attack to happen. So how does this bear on the conversation of Afghanistan falling? Let me tell you how anybody who was on the ground fighting at any time during that war could have told you what happened was going to happen because again, and I don't mean to generalize, Right. But Afghan people in general respond out of fear. It's who they fear the most is who they respond to. Okay. And I've had other stories on other episodes talking about that. They feared the Taliban. They didn't fear America. They feared us slightly. You know, we offered them opportunity, but that opportunity waned in that that vision of opportunity diminished at the thought of America leaving. Anybody could have told you that they were going to lay down their arms and very few of them were actually convicted to the point of dying for a cause. Every U.S. soldier that went to fight for their country was convicted to the point of dying for that cause. That's not the same. They didn't share the same conviction. 
and we saw it back in 2008 and 2009. I had friends that were there after me and friends that were there before me and we've all talked about it. And guess what? It was the same before I was there and it was the same after I was there. So how does this happen? How does the disconnect from the warrior on the ground to the general at the Pentagon and the, the, the secretaries of the service branches and the, the, the joint chiefs, how does, how does that disconnect? How does that gap happen? Here's my prediction. So the, the commanders on the ground, battalion level, squadron level, task force level commanders on the ground. Company commanders, one echelon below, right? As they're reporting up, hey, how's your progress? Hey, these people fucking suck, right? They got no heart. They're uncoordinated. They can't do PT. They can't fire weapons. They, they can't stay on task and focused and concentrate on a mission. You know, they, they fucking squirrel off on the, 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 the smallest little thing. You know, they, they, they're, they're just not dedicated. So that goes up from company to battalion or squadron. And then that, you know, squadron tries to polish it a little bit because they got to report up to brigade. Well, we're making progress, but we're not right where we need to be. You know, we have some concerns, but we're going to try to train through them. Something to that effect. So battalion sends that up to brigade. Brigade has to send it up to division, corps, whatever the big echelon in the sky is over the theater, right? The theater commander. And while I, while I was there, we were under 101st under General Slusher, right? So it went to, from troop to squadron to brigade. And brigade takes all that information and polishes up just a little bit more, right? They're making progress. They have some concerns, but they're training through them. But the number one thing they hear and the number one thing they report is they're making progress. So you get up to the division level. And these aren't probably the actual division commanders, the guys in the hot seat. These are their staffs, right? These are the, the staff monkeys uh, that, that used to be HUA and used to be Ranger and used to be all cool and shit that are now in staff puke positions that are writing reports. And they polish it up a little bit more. And so from the ground to the stratosphere, being the Pentagon, every time that echoes up, they polish it just a little bit more. So by the time it gets to the generals in the Pentagon and the service secretaries and their staffs, everyone's like, hey, man, they're making progress and it's going to work out. We're building a sovereign nation army. And it's so disconnected, right? It sounds like we played this game in like kindergarten, first, second, third grade, right? The telephone game, right? The teacher whispers into Johnny's ear, Tommy's dad made him a mushroom quesadilla before the football game. And it goes around the circle, right? We played all, we all played this game. And then finally the last kid, the teacher's like, what's the telephone message? And it's like, Tommy's daddy tripped on mushrooms while he banged a hooker at the football game or something to that effect. I don't know, but it gets totally fucking distorted as it goes around. And that's exactly what happens as you're reporting up battlefield initiative and battlefield progress. The guys on the ground are saying this will never fucking work. And the people in the Pentagon are thinking and hearing as it polishes up through the echelons, hey, things are working out. We still have concerns, but we're making progress and it'll be okay. That's what happened in Afghanistan. Anybody who fought on the ground there actually fought. Didn't just, you know, shop up and down route Disney at, at Bagram, right? Anybody who actually fought in the mountains, fought down in the desert in RC South, 
anybody who was actually over by the packy border in any of the, the far out places away from Baffer Calf could have told you that place would never fucking hold its own. So for Bill and Jimmy and Ryan, we're sorry, brothers. We know you fought hard, and those are just three. My whole task force, our whole brigade lost 33 on that deployment. Okay, they're not the only ones. They're the ones I, I chose to talk about today. I'd wreck this episode if I started trying to talk about all 33. I couldn't get through it. But, you know, well, Mike, Mike Murdoch, I'm going to mention you too, brother. Uh, you, you actually died in my arms. So don't ever let them die the second death. We have to continue saying their names, but we have to try to make sense of understanding of what they died for. And right now there's a lot of Afghan vets that are having trouble doing that. Um, that kind of leads into some of the other stuff I've been doing. So there was this appropriate distraction. We'll just call it the appropriate distraction. Because right after Afghanistan fell, I got some phone calls from some folks I know. And this this episode of of what's happening in Doc's life right now, I don't I wouldn't say this chapter's closed. It's not completely over with, uh, although kind of an official pause button it looks like has been hit for a while. You know, I could have very easily gone to the airwaves and very easily done a ton of episodes similar to what I'm talking about right now. I did multiple back-to-back episodes about COVID. As COVID was unfolding, I could have done multiple back-to-back episodes about Afghanistan as this was unfolding. So instead, I got quiet and I got busy. Uh, And I'm not fully prepared to talk about everything that I was due as I was getting busy. But I could try to help the situation or I could just run my mouth. I chose to try to help the situation. That'll probably be another episode in the future. Again, we're not going to get into it today. There were other other warriors, uh, Nick Palmashano, Tim Kennedy, and their organizations doing amazing things. Some folks that I know close to me were actually doing some amazing things. There were some incredible feats of bravery, honor, courage, everything that we stood for as warriors. U.S. warriors going back to this country and doing con- conducting rescue operations on the ground, trying to get U.S. citizens, U.S. green card holders, and our true allies, the ones that were willing to die for us to get out of there, so they can be, so they can find prosperity and hope in another country as the Taliban was going door to door trying to hunt them down. I do not want to get into the misgivings of this administration. I do not want to get into how bad things were. Yes, I hold this administration accountable and responsible for what happened in August in Afghanistan. But folks, know your history. Know your recent history. This all didn't start with President Biden. President Trump was partially responsible for this. And it also goes all the way back to President Obama. The Taliban organization is a terrorist organization, and it used to be the policy of this nation that we don't negotiate with terrorists. Well, President Obama started negotiating with terrorists for the release of Bo Bergdahl. Should have never fucking happened. Maybe that'll be its own episode, but it's not going to be today. But when we started negotiating with terrorist organizations and treating them like sovereign nations, they began to think that they were legitimately sovereign. And what is happening on the ground right now? The Taliban 
is considered a legitimate sovereign political power. They're just a terrorist organization, folks. Don't give them more credit than what they deserve. Anyway, so for Bill, Jimmy, and Ryan, uh, that's episode one. Let's talk about some coffee. So Weekly Grind is coming up in just a moment. The Weekly Grind. All right. So our grind this week, surprise, surprise, comes from Black Rifle Coffee Company. You can't you can't get mad that I keep doing Black Rifle. They keep coming out with good shit, and that's just content. <laughs> uh, but it's also good coffee. Uh, so this week, we're looking at Gothic Serpent, right? And if you know your military operations and you know your military history, you instantly know what this is about. This is an homage to the Rangers and the Deltas on the October 1993 uh, operation in Somalia, better known as Black Hawk Down, when two Black Hawk helicopters were shot down in uh, Mogadishu and the rescue operations started as assault operations and uh, ended up as rescue operations. Uh, First to start off with the artwork, and I don't know if it's Evan or which of the crew at Black Rifles doing the artwork lately. I saw a podcast with them not too long ago. It leads me to believe that Evan comes up with some of this stuff. I wouldn't be surprised. He's pretty creative. And I, I talk about him like I know him. Never met the dude, right? Uh, but you get to know people over social media. So anyway, the bag itself is chocolate chips. And if you understand military uniforms and that time period, 1993, in the desert uniform that was out back then, it's referred to as chocolate chips. It's the it's the desert camouflage uniform uh, that was used in Desert Storm, uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and then in Somalia. And then we went to the DCU-2 pattern in OIF-1 in uh, 2003. So, and then it's got a wicked-ass uh, skull with a snake on it, which looks like um, it's probably been t- tattooed on, I don't know, a couple thousand soldiers. It's a medium roast, right? Uh, I got the website up. See, so it's a it's a medium roast from Kenya, uh, Kenyan Arabica beans, right? First, the description on the bag, I love it. It just says, this roast is Irene. I say again, this roast is Irene. Fucking Irene. Irene was the, the mission launch code word uh, that was very popularized uh, in the movie Black Hawk Down. So anyway, it's a Kenyan Arabica bean roast. When I when I sip on it this morning, and I've been the bag is empty, you can't see it, but the bag is totally fucking flat and empty because I've been drinking this all week. It's it's a great whole body medium roasted coffee. It's for me, it's a little bit of sweet. I can get a little bit of fruitiness on the front and on the end. It's not bitter, uh, so the acid is balanced in it. It's just like. Most of what I report out on with Black Rifle, it's just a good drinking fucking coffee. They get that part right almost every single time. Uh, They describe it as a medium roast, uh, boasting notes of floral peach and cherry. Again, the fruitiness that I catch on the front and back end. They recommend brewing it in a patio dripper or a Chemex. Uh, It's all in the grind. As Grindsy said and was quoted in the movie again, this is multiple multiple different tributes to uh, the movie Black Hawk Down and that Operation Gothic Serpent. Uh, I did mine up at a French press this morning, and that doesn't suck either. 
so and again i've got the coffee subscription i've got the the three whatever bags uh, that come once a month i recommend that you uh look into the black rifle coffee subscription and make sure that you don't ever run out of black rifle i had an issue with them lately and let me talk about their customer service real quick so my coffee subscription got lost in the mail that happens there's a lot of stuff moving and in episode or segment two we'll talk about supply chain and all this other stuff happening, right? You know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm watching my tracking. I'm getting all like a little kid and like, Hey, where's my coffee? Like a kid or an addict, whichever. So my coffee got lost. So I emailed him real quick. I'm like, Hey, here's my order number. I'm, you know, coffee subscription member for a while, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, Hey, no problem. We see that there's a problem with your shipment. We're going to drop the exact same thing in the mail for you today. So sure enough, it routes through and I get it. Great. They, they made do with what I got. And about two days, three days later, I got the original box that got lost in transit somewhere. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they didn't care about that. And they're pretty sure that they figured that would happen. Uh, it was either going to go back to them or it was going to go forward to me or it was going home with a postal carrier. It was one of those three options, right? So somebody was going to get some coffee out of the deal and it went to the intended person. So anyway, very responsive. They didn't ask a single question. They were like, yep, we understand. Here you go. It's in the chute and it's on its way back out to you. So great customer service. So when you got a company that dials in customer service, dials in quality of product and continues to put out consistently great products, I would recommend them. That's Black Rifle Coffee. Look for a link to them in the show notes. Stay tuned. Segment two is coming up. Born from the passion of taking care of our nation's veterans and warriors, Remedy Alpine, owned, operated, and staffed by veterans, provides a variety of therapeutic adventure and backcountry recreation programs ranging from single-day hikes to multi-day, multi-night mountain treks and even basic mountaineering adventures. For more information, visit them at www.remedyalpine.org. Remedy Alpine, reminding you to work the mountain and rest your mind. All right, so welcome back to segment two. So if you remember in episode 43 in August, I was talking about COVID vaccine mandates. And they were coming up. Some of them, there were a couple of states at the time, Washington, California, New York. Uh, And I know that this is since then in the last two months, it's become a bigger topic. Lots of other newsworthy and noteworthy things have happened around this discussion. And so, you know, I think my prediction was relative to healthcare as a full-time healthcare administrator that this was going to potentially collapse and create dramatic impacts to the healthcare access in our healthcare delivery system in the United States. Bingo. Um, so, yeah, uh, over the last couple of months working through this as the mandates became real um, and then you saw employees fighting to try to get a medical or religious exemption because they didn't want to lose their jobs, right? But they didn't want to be forced into getting a vaccine that they didn't believe in. So again, I, I and I think I kind of stated this in episode 43, I see both sides of the coin. I default to civil liberty, not civil liberty, personal liberty. Okay. As a healthcare administrator, I mean, I've, I've been required to take vaccines to have my job. I've had multiple vaccines during my job in the military. And I know the military is different, but vaccines for requirement to work are not new. It's, it's been around for a while. Vaccines for public health emergencies 
are not new. This concept, this practice has been around a while. But what I don't know, because I didn't, I wasn't alive during Spanish flu. I wasn't alive during the the brunt of polio, right? But what I, from from what my historical perspective and my my reading and trying to be somewhat well spoken on it, educated, prepared, whatever. Two things are different. One, I don't think every aspect and facet of our life was controlled for a year and a half prior to where the government was completely, you know, at least on a superficial level, rebelled against. Because let's be honest, people are rebelling by refusing to get the vaccine. People aren't really rebelling by voting in different politicians or other things that might strike, you know, a wave of change across our country. People are tired of being told what to do by the government. Right. So they're speaking up and that's 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 perfect that we in this country are afforded the rights and the liberties to stand up for yourself. We have uh, and this will be played out in the courts. Uh, We have a lot of companies, uh, Southwest Airlines, I think FedEx, a bunch of others, a lot of lot of notoriety coming around now about the federal government's overreach uh, and their abuse of power mandating this. For me specifically, although there were some state mandates in some states where I managed some health practice activities, the federal government has announced, uh, I think it was September 9th, there was an announcement that by December 8th or 9th, there's a federal mandate that if you're a government contractor or an organization that employs more than 100 personnel, staff members, or more specifically to my my full-time gig the sector, the business sector that I work in healthcare, if you receive federal reimbursement dollars, like CMS, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare, right? So if if you get reimbursed or you see patients that, that that reimburse you in federal revenue, right? And that's just not Medicare. That's also TRICARE. So if you see DOD, if you see government, if you see Indian Health, if you see VA, all these government health contracts all form around the rules, regulations, and principles of the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare. That is the baseline or the gold standard. That is the benchmark of what all federal healthcare reimbursement policies and contracts are built off of. So if they announce that there's going to be this federal mandate effective, you know, in about a month and a half, that this is a loose statistic. Again, keep in mind, you know, 97% of all statistics are made up on the spot, including this one, right? But it's probably dartboard close. The majority of, or I would have, I'd venture to say greater than 90% of all healthcare practitioners, practices, organizations, large health systems across the United States receive reimbursement dollars from one federal payer or another, whether that be directly CMS, whether that be uh, Department of Defense, TRICARE, or whoever their administrator is. The VA, Indian Health, 90% or greater, it's probably on the high part of the 90 percentile too, receive some kind of reimbursement from the federal government. So that essentially creates a health system-wide, national health system-wide mandate. Um. That's a problem. 
now, it's good to see that in the last week or so, the administration or spokespersons for the administration are coming out and saying, wait a minute, we're going to work through this. We're not saying all these people are going to be out of work um, in, you know, on this date. But I've been tracking this because it bears on some personal conversations I've had with some friends. In one week alone, I think this was three weeks ago, um, if you look at Johns Hopkins, Becker's radiology business, if you read industry newswires within the healthcare leadership spectrum, right, I counted headlines. And I did go back to make sure that there wasn't a a duplicity of counting that it wasn't one thing referencing another in multiple articles in one week. And I believe it to be about three weeks ago from the time I'm recording this 10,000 healthcare workers either lost their job or quit over the vaccine mandates the very next week, 14 or 4,000 in a two week time period, 14,000 people were no longer employed in the healthcare industry in the United States. I had an exchange back and forth with one of my friends, good friend who's, who's an academic. He's, I think he's single. He's got a PhD or a couple of PhDs, whatever. He's a professor at a university. I don't necessarily want to name him. We, we don't argue. We actually have adult conversations. So he brought up and cited something that, you know, uh, Hey, there's, there's over a half million healthcare workers in the United States. So although this raw number sounds great, you know, it's actually less than 1% or whatever the percentage is, was of the actual impact to healthcare in the United States. And I, and, and he's absolutely right, right? That was accurate because sometimes statistically you've got to look at how, how data gets produced. So 10,000 sounds like a lot, but when you look at it as relative to the total number of healthcare workers in the United States, it wasn't that big of a deal, right? And I was like, hey, that's great. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. And But it, it made me look deeper, Right. So this is, I looked at a two week period in, you know, 10,000 one week, 4,000 another week. And then since the pandemic started, right, I don't know when or where my friend got his information. So I don't know where, what time period it was citing from, but I do know one other statistic since the pandemic started, and this was tracked at about March, April of 2020. So in about an 18 month window, a year and a half ish, call it of this pandemic across the United States, over a half a million healthcare workers in the United States have left the industry, lost their jobs or died because of COVID. Because of it. And people are dying. Again, I've maintained this consistently. This is a real disease. It just needs the appropriate amount of respect. And I'm still unsure if it was worthy of and warranted collapsing our economy, collapsing our lifestyle system and in, in a total trampling of the constitution. And in some places in the United States, a revocation of your civil liberties that were protected under the constitution. Anyway, I've beat that one up enough. That's a lot. That's a lot of Bubba's and sisters that ain't working anymore. What does that mean? And these aren't just, these aren't just home health aides. These aren't just, you know, certified nursing assistants or, or, or entry level positions. This runs the gauntlet of everything from a receptionist to physicians. And I personally know physicians that if the federal mandate come out, comes out, they're done. They'll figure it out, but they're done. They're not going to practice anymore. And it's not because they're afraid of the vaccine. 
it's not because they think that there's little nanowires that are getting injected to you that are is going to allow the 5G system to control your brain. It's none of the stupidity that goes along with this. It's about the violation of personal rights and liberties. And again, I said a minute ago, but you were forced to take vaccines to get into <laughs> clinical practice. It's just different this time. I think it's because this disease and everything around it has been so highly politicized. And again, it controlled every facet of our life for the better part of a year to a year and a half. We were told where we could worship, how we could worship, and with how many we could worship. We could, you know, we we got Dr. Fauci telling America whether or not we can socialize at, at Christmas and Halloween this year. Are you kidding me? You got a, a, a highly, what's believed to be highly corrupt. I don't know personally, but everything doesn't sound good about this dude. So you, you got a guy who is whatever. You got a dude. Let's just take, let's get all the, the, the noise away from it. You got one dude that's basically making the decision of whether or not we can celebrate with our family members and friends during the holiday season this year. Seriously, how did we get to that point? How did we get to this position in the United States to where one dude is making the decision and everyone's listening to him? Oh, Dr. Fauci, can can our kids trick-or-treat this year? Man, that's the most un-American question, right? And here's the thing, folks. Please stop comparing us to other countries. Making relative, relative comparisons. I think is important, right? Countries of similar size and population, you know, what mandates did they put in place and how are they, how are they doing as far as disease control, disease spread? I think those are relative discussions and I think those are appropriate. But when you start talking about the trampling of, of civil liberties and personal liberties and comparing us to other countries, look at their political structure and then look at our political structure. If we're not the same country, by government type, then don't compare us. Compare us to a republic. And it stopped calling us a fucking democracy. We're not a democracy. We're a democratic republic. We're a rule by law, folks. And, and it burns me to no end when you get, and this isn't, this isn't the left, this isn't the right, this is people in Washington. When you have representatives and senators refer to us as a democracy. Stop fucking doing it. We're not. I think Dan Crenshaw gets it right. He he commonly refers to us as a republic. Tom Cotton does. Those are about the only two I can think of off the top of my head. There's probably a couple more, but there's not a lot more, right? These idiots continually refer to us as a democracy. We're not. Read the Constitution. Where's the word democracy in there? It doesn't exist. So anyway, COVID, you know, it's funny. I went back and listened to some of my early episodes and, you know, I, we, my early, this is where I totally blew this one off. I fucking missed the mark on this one horribly. You know, I was like, yeah, this is probably going to be around for another three, six, nine months. It's going to get, it's going to get intrusive. It's going to be bothersome. And then it'll probably wane out and go away. We're a year and a half into this folks and ain't going nowhere. It is, uh, it's still the, the topic of conversation. Let's talk about some supply chain issues, right? So not only I talked about impact to healthcare, 
There's there's a lot less people working in healthcare, which means you're going to have to wait a lot longer to see your doctor, to get advanced imaging, to get into surgeries. Certain states are still putting limits on elective surgeries. So what's going to end up happening, let me close out the healthcare discussion real quick. What's going to end up happening is when people do access the healthcare system, they're sicker, which means you have higher acuity patients, which means they're sicker, right? Higher acuity, I'm sicker, right? Higher acuity patients cost more, Right. Higher acuity patients, once they access the healthcare system, generally need a hospital bed. Well, guess what? COVID patients are taking up hospital beds too. So now you've got, you know, if you just allow people, if you had the ability to allow people to access the healthcare system earlier into their disease process, they probably wouldn't need the hospital bed. But we're creating sicker patients by everything that's happening. Uh, so you've got higher acuity patients typically resulting in a need for, you know, a 24 to 48 hour hospital stay that requires a bed. So bed space is going away, which continues to the the frantic and panic of the pandemic. And those patients cost a lot more. So instead of reducing healthcare, right, instead of like putting a patch in your tire because it's got a slow leak, that's a $5 fix. You just let it continue to roll out. Don't do anything with it. Just keep pumping air into it because that at least makes it look full, right? And then you drive down the highway and you have a blowout. Now you got to repair the rim. You know, you got to repair the tire and you got to repair your, your, your fender because the flying rubber is, it was, you know, debriding off your rim, just fucking shredded the back quarter panel of your car. All right. So it would have been a $5 fix that would have been a $5 fix that lasted another year or so just became a $900 fix that has to be done immediately. That's the example you need to pay attention to, folks, because that's exactly what's happening in our healthcare delivery system. Let's talk about supply chain. It's taken forever to get stuff. People are focusing on the stack up of boats for three miles off the, the shores of Long Beach, Los Angeles, San Francisco, you know, Focus on California first. It's not just there. COVID has caused staffing crises across pretty much every business sector in the United States, but California has its own problem. And this is Governor Gavin Newsom's fucking ridiculous leadership that led to this last year. And it was, it was talked about. I remember seeing it in, in, in a certain degree, but it didn't really grab my attention, but now it has my attention. And I'm sure that's the case for a lot of other folks too. So he passed some legislation. Everyone heard that he passed the thing saying that in 2035, every vehicle in California will be electric. Everyone understood that. Everybody heard that. That was a topic of conversation that was getting socialized, right? But nobody understood the second order, third order, you know, secondary, tertiary impacts to that. And the, the sub-legislation or the, the riders that were put into that. So let's talk about some of those riders that were put into that. One of them being that uh, to open fair commerce, I think is what the excuse was. He was not allowing owner operators of long haul commercial trucks into the ports anymore because he was opening it up to big business, taking it away from the mom and pop operator and only focusing on large corporations because you can control large corporations. You can't control Bob Jones who owns his own truck right? He decides what he wants. So they took control away from owner operators because they, well, they didn't have control of owner operators and they knew that, right? So they, they dismissed them and said, you're not allowed at the international seaports anymore. Well, that, (laughs) that was a large portion. And I don't know the statistic. I would be throwing a dartboard and making a guess. That's a fair amount of the long haul truck drivers 
in California, in any other state. That's how these folks make their money. They're independent contractors. They make the investment. This is the American way. They make the investment of two hundred dollars to $400,000 of this truck, this tractor, all right, tractor trailer. It's the tractor part. That if, as long as you take care of it, that thing will roll down the highway for four or five million miles, right? That is a business investment. So they make this investment as a small business operator, and now they're told that they can't go to the international seaports. Additionally, in the legislation where it said that by 2035, you have, every vehicle has to be electric, they also said no truck older than 2011 year model is going to be allowed at the port because of emissions control and blah, 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 blah. So that's a 10-year-old vehicle. Well, even if forward-thinking commercial trucking companies wanted to be compliant, they're not going to make this $300,000 investment in a new tractor. And if they're a commercial trucking company, they're not going to buy five or six of these things, right? That's They're not going to spend two or $3 million for something that typically lasts, you know, a long fucking time. When in 2035, it's required to be electric. Some of them would actually prefer to buy an electric one right now. But guess what? That market doesn't exist. I'm sure Elon Musk and his boys at Tesla, boys and girls at Tesla are trying to work on this. But there are no commercial trucks in a, in a, in a green model available on the market. So their legislation in California, forward-thinking large organizations that think of asset life cycle, they don't want to invest in something that's no longer going to be good in 15 years because these things typically last a lot longer than 15 years. They, they, well, it's not that they don't want to invest. They can't invest in the product that'll be good in 2035 because it doesn't exist. But they might, they, they need to replace their, some of their, their fleet because it's older than 2011. It's 2010 or earlier. And my wife's truck's a 2008, right? And it's still, doing just fine. And that's a, that, that's a personal vehicle, not even a commercial grade vehicle. So you put all that together in California, which has some of the largest international seaports uh, of freight that comes into America. No wonder we've got ships stacked up for three miles at portages all the way off our shore. And no wonder the supply chain problems broken. We used to, in the radiology space, it's the space I work in in healthcare. This coffee's delicious, by the way. We used to have a, a 90 to 120 day, three to four month lead time. If we ordered a new MRI or a new CT or a new PET CT, if we ordered a new piece of advanced equipment, it'd take three to four months, right? They don't have a warehouse full of those, right? They have frames and they have stuff, I'm sure, partially built, but they don't really put the whole thing together until people order it. Those are million dollar pieces of equipment. They don't just, I mean, that's just bad use of inventory and supply chain for the OEMs, Right. They don't have a ton of these things just sitting on a, a massive fucking shelf somewhere. They pull it off and put it in a box and send it to you. They're built to order, right? Especially when you start getting into the specifications based off the need of the practice. I don't want to get getting too far in the weeds here. But anyway, it used to be 90 to 120 days. Were it 180 to 210, it is more than doubled. It's six to seven months lead time to order new equipment now. And we're projecting, we being the healthcare industry, 
we're projecting by sometime in the first quarter of next year, that'll be a year. It's we're about to get to the point where it's going to take us a year to buy new equipment. That's after we've paid for it. You know, depending on the terms of your sale, you know, you're putting 20% down potentially if you're good on a piece of equipment, a million dollar piece of equipment, you're putting 200 grand down on something that you're not even going to see for a year. It's not even going to start driving revenue for you till 30, 45 days after that. Cause you got to get it installed. You got to do the training. Then you got to see patients and you have to go through the billing cycle before you actually start getting reimbursement from the insurance company or the patient. So you got to spend money on something now and order it now to not even get a dime out of it, not even see it for at least a year. And if you're lucky, it'll start driving revenue for you in 13 to 15 months. That's an insane proposition, right? And that's just healthcare. You know, think about everything else. You know, I, I'm in the mobile imaging side of things. Our, we have very specialized trailers, coaches that these things go in. You know, those things used to be, you know, 30, 45 day lead time to get those things built. You know, those things now are four to six month wait. And that's projected to get longer, right? And it's, uh, you know, are the companies going to start parallel building systems? But then you're going to have this coach that's sitting there without the MRI for it. You know, it becomes into this this balance of space, this balance of, of everything. And it, this pushes everything out. Speaking of tractors, the trucks, the long haul trucks, you know, Asia controls, I think, 85% or greater of the semiconductor market. Those things come over on ships. You know, uh, almost everything in America now has a semiconductor. You Five minutes ago, we were talking about the legislation Gavin Newsom put in California requiring all vehicles in California by 2035 to be electric. Well, guess what? That means they're going re- to need a lot of fucking semiconductors. And guess what? Those all come out of Asia. We can't get them into the ports now. And I don't want to get into the, 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 the political theories of whether or not certain large countries in, chi- in, in that part of the world, China, whether they're controlling output specifically to cripple our markets. That's something people don't think about. You know, this administration talks about, you know, discussions with China and acts like they're our friend. They're not our friend, folks. Do some fucking research. And if you pay your people pennies and you can legally harvest their organs and sell them on an open market because nobody's really paying attention to you and you can treat people like shit because you're truly communist to the full extent of communism, nobody cares whether you have the ability or nobody in your organization being the Chinese Communist Party nobody cares if they have the ability to put 500 of these widgets out a day and they're only putting 100 out they can control the output production and control the number that'll go on the boats and come over to the western world and so we're being held hostage we're being held hostage in an economic war. I'm going to end on that note because I think that's probably going to be another show and I'm almost at an hour already. And man, I think it's a good discussion. I think it's things that people should pay attention to because this is real folks. COVID's only part of it. Other things, you know, other things are going on in the world. I, I in every episode I've invited people fact check me. 
make sure that I'm telling the truth. And if I'm not, shoot me a message, bolusabeans at gmail.com. Uh, anyway, all right, uh, take a break for just a second. I'll come back and close out the show, folks. That's episode 44. All right, so that's episode 44. I started doing the closeout and recap at the end of segment two there. Afghanistan. Uh, for the veterans that listen to the show, uh, first of all, thank you for your service. It's, we're probably all still trying to mentally process everything that happened a couple of months ago as it relates to the sacrifice, the loss, the blood, the sweat, the tears, everything that we went through during our time on the ground there. Uh, I don't think that chapter's closed. Um, I know that there's been some Pentagon hearings and stuff in the last couple of weeks. Um, I know that there's active activities from organizations trying to still get U.S. citizens, green card holders, and our true allies out of that country. My wife uh, volunteers with Team Rubicon. Uh, if you don't know about them, I'll put a link to them in the show notes. She volunteers with Team Rubicon and spent some time down at Fort Bliss, it, the refugee camp down there, with the Afghan refugees. Very eye-opening. I think I'm going to have her on the show and talk about that. We're going to do just an Afghan Afghanistan show It'll probably include my wife and Rock. Uh, Rock and I need to get together and do a show again with coffee and additives. Those are always fun shows. Um, COVID's still wreaking havoc. Uh, the the vaccine mandates are the big thing. And keep in mind, nobody's really talking about Afghanistan anymore because everyone's talking about these COVID vaccine mandates. Folks, these important issues that are still important issues, don't let them get clouded by the noise of other things. We've got to be able to have multiple conversations in parallel. And I hope that my show did that today. The coffee this week, our grind is Gothic Serpent from Black Rifle Coffee. I'll have a link to them in the show notes as well. Uh, they're pretty popular. Most everybody knows about them. This this roast, again, an homage to the Rangers and the Deltas in the Somalia mission in 1993, otherwise known as Black Hawk Down. That's about it. Uh, kind of felt good to get behind the microphone today. Uh, I'll have another show, hopefully in another week, maybe two. And uh, don't know what I'm going to do yet. Still trying to put some things together. Kind of playing it all by ear right now. Uh, so anyway, that's the show. Remember, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we've got our WordPress. Our website is www.bullets2beans.com. If you want to shoot me a message, go ahead and drop me a line at bullets2beans at gmail.com. We do have YouTube. I'm looking at putting some more YouTube content together. Got a trip coming up down to Arizona. In about uh, three weeks. Um, so look for some content that'll come out of that. That'll be with Adam Miracle, who was on the Memorial Day episode uh, this year. Uh, we're linking up with Justin, uh, one of our board members from Remedy Alpine. Then my wife and I are going to go hang out in Nevada in December for a little bit. So we'll probably have some content coming out on there and just doing some other shows. So big news coming in January. Huge news coming in January. Can't talk about it now, but I'll talk about it in about two months. So holiday seasons are coming upon us. Start your Christmas shopping now. I just talked about supply chain being completely fucked up. So start your Christmas shopping now. Uh, be safe trick-or-treating tomorrow, folks. Uh, this will come out after trick-or-treat, but I hope everybody had fun dressing up like ghouls and goblins. Uh, that's about it, folks. So thanks for episode 44 and stay frosty. Bullets to Beans is an official media production of Lifeline Media, LLC, Eagle River, Alaska. Alaska.